All right, so what if Adam and Eve didn't exist? So what if Jonah didn't get swallowed by fish? So what if Noah's flood didn't really happen? So what? If I believe the Jesus stuff, you know, the New Testament, all the stuff about Jesus and the resurrection, all that, what difference does all that other stuff really make? I mean, really? Well, friends, that's a good question. And let me answer it by saying it's not that simple. The stakes are a lot higher than that. And the reason that the stakes are higher is because Jesus Christ believed every one of those things that you're saying you don't. That was Dr. Lon Solomon, and you are listening to So What? Join us now as Lon brings us a message from God's Word. And now, here's Lon. You know, on Tuesdays for the last 18 and a half years, I've been meeting with people in my office. And I've heard over the last 18 and a half years just about everything you could ever hear. But I remember one couple that came in in particular a few years ago. They were planning to get married, and uh, I had the groom-to-be and the bride-to-be. And so as I always do, I ask them how they stood with Jesus Christ. Were they believers? Had they trusted Christ their personal Savior? They both said, yes, no problem. I said, wonderful. But then the groom-to-be said this. He said, well, but we've still got a few differences that we're working on, but we don't think that they're major. And he said, I think we can work them out. So I said, well, you know, just out of curiosity, what are these few minor differences? He said, well, you know... My fiance here, he said, she's not so sure Jonah was really swallowed by a fish. She's not so sure that Adam and Eve ever really existed. She's not so sure that Noah's flood, well, that it really happened the way the Bible says. She's got real doubts about that stuff. And he said, but I believe the Bible literally. I believe it happened just the way the Bible said. We don't think it's going to be a big problem. I said, you know, I hate to tell you this, but I disagree with you. I think it's going to be a major problem. I mean, what are you going to do when your six-year-old comes home from Sunday school having learned the story of Jonah and the fish? Is one of you going to say, oh, that's true? And is the other one of you going to say, well, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We're not sure. It's probably. I said, you know, how are you going to go into marriage with that kind of foundation? I said, I think you got a big problem. And friends, it's a problem that lots of good church-going, professing Christians have. Maybe it's a problem that some of us here this morning have. And the problem is, to what degree, just how much, is the Bible the inspired, inerrant, absolutely correct Word of God? To what degree? Now, that's what we want to talk about using a passage from the life of David as a little bit of a springboard. That's something we want to talk about today. And I believe that this is the single most important theological issue in all of Christianity that we're going to talk about today. Now, you say, Lon, wait a minute. Time out just a second. The single most important theological issue, I mean, really. Wouldn't you say that God, maybe, was the single greatest important theological issue in Christianity, or Jesus Christ, maybe, or heaven and eternal life and how to get to heaven? I mean, don't you think those are the single most important theological issues? The answer is, in my opinion, no. And I'll tell you why. The reason is that all the data we have about God, all the data we have about Jesus Christ, All the data we have about heaven and eternal life and how to acquire it, it all comes out of the Bible. And if the Bible is not utterly trustworthy in all that it says and in all of its parts, then how do we know for sure that what it tells us about God and about Jesus Christ and about heaven and about eternal life, how do we know that that's right? Let me repeat, I believe that the single most important theological issue of all is this issue of the inspiration, the inerrancy, and the trustworthiness of the Bible. If we don't know that, we don't know anything. So, 
Back to that now. Let's look at 2 Samuel 7, and we'll, we'll see how that works into this discussion. 2 Samuel 7, a little bit of background. Remember, David is now king. He's living in a wonderful palace with cedar and everything. But the ark of God is living in a tent. And so he has this wonderful passion, this dream, to build a beautiful permanent temple for the ark. And that's where we pick up the story. Chapter 7, verse 1. And after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace, while the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. And that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Nathan, Go tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Not you, but the Lord. Are you the one, David, who's going to build me a house to dwell in? Skip down to verse 12. When your days are over, David, and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and then verse 17, Nathan went and reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Now, friends, it's easy to read right past this and keep going and not even stop long enough to understand the incredible significance of what we just saw happen here. Think about what we just saw happen here. First, Nathan, who is a prophet, the Bible says that, David says to him, hey, I've got this wonderful idea. I want to build a temple. And Nathan gave David his most considered advice based on all of his human wisdom and all of his human instinct and all of his human experience. And he said, David, that's a wonderful idea, son. Go for it. Go for it. But then, then when he went home, Nathan heard directly from God. God spoke directly to Nathan and God said, hey, Nathan, you know how you told David to go build that temple for me? Well, guess what, Nathan? Survey says eh, it's not going to happen. I don't want it to happen like that. You go back and now don't you give him your wisdom. Don't you give him your opinion. Don't you give him your ideas. You go back and give him my word and you tell him, David, you're not building that temple at all. Your son's going to build it and I don't want you to build it. And so... It was no longer Nathan's own wisdom or his own instinct that he was going to go back and speak to David. It was the pure, unadulterated word of God, which, as we saw in verse 17, is called revelation, information directly from God. Now, why is this so important? It's important because this is what being a prophet was all about. A prophet, the unique part of being a prophet of the prophetic gift is that a prophet had direct access to God himself. And God would speak his perfect word, his perfect will, directly to prophets. And then those prophets would repeat those words of God to human beings, to people like us. Friends, this is how we got the scripture. This is how we got the Bible. The Bible is nothing more than the words of God that God gave to some prophet and then some prophet wrote down for you and me. Because of the special access that a prophet had to direct information from God himself, prophets didn't simply quote scripture, prophets wrote scripture. 
And you know all the authors of the books of the Bible whose identity we know. We don't know the identity of every author of every book. But the ones we do know, every single one of them had the gift of prophecy. Moses. Deuteronomy 18 says he was a prophet. David. Acts chapter 2 says that he was a prophet. Samuel. 1 Samuel 3 says that Samuel was attested in Israel, certified as a prophet. The Apostle Paul said he had the gift of prophecy. And then, of course, we've got Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea and Micah and Jonah and all those guys. They were all prophets. And the reason, the reason that God used prophets is because of what the Bible is. The Bible is direct revelation, direct information from Almighty God to the human race And this is something only prophets could produce because only prophets had this ability to hear directly from God and then to communicate the word of God to us. That's why God had to use prophets to write the Bible. Now, what's interesting here is we get a chance to see the difference in Nathan's life. At first, Nathan gave his opinion. Well, Nathan's opinion written down doesn't mean squat. You understand what I'm saying? If Nathan wrote all his opinions down and bound it in leather, it wouldn't mean squat. But when he writes down, thus saith the Lord, as he did after he went home and heard from God, now that's different. That's scripture, and that's something that makes a difference. You understand what I'm saying to you? You see the difference? Now, that's as far as I want to go with the passage, but I want to ask the most important question. What's the most important question? Wonderful. Okay, wonderful. Lon, so what? Nobody but you would have possibly found something so minuscule as that to spend a whole sermon on, Lon. So what difference does this possibly make? Oh, no, no. Friends, this is not minor. What we just talked about here and about prophets writing the Bible is not minor at all. It's incredibly important. Learning that it took prophets to write the Bible brings us nose to nose with the Bible's claim for itself that it is the inspired, inerrant, direct word of God to mankind. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture literally is God breathed meaning God breathed the words that he wanted written into these prophets, and these prophets then breathed them out onto a piece of paper. Here's a definition of inspiration. I want you to look at it. Inspiration means that God caused the exact words, the exact words he wanted to be written down in the Bible. That is what inspiration means. And by the way, inspiration means that God doesn't inspire the Bible to you. It doesn't mean that you read it and go, oh boy, that verse just zapped me and I know what that means. It has special meaning for me, but somebody else who reads it doesn't get that same meaning. No, 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 no. Dog means dog. Cat means cat. It's just that simple. God doesn't have any hidden special meaning in here for you that he doesn't have for anybody else. If he says dog, he means dog. If he says cat, he means cat. And it always means the same. All right. It's straightforward face value. Now, inspiration means that if God himself had written the entire Bible on stone tablets while Moses was on the top of Mount Sinai from Genesis to Revelation and handed it to Moses, that those stone tablets would read exactly the way your Bible reads today. Inspiration means that if Jesus Christ had sat down at a desk in Nazareth and taken a pen and a scroll and written the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation and handed it to us, it would be the exact same Bible word for word that we have today. 
This is what inspiration means. And I want you to see the New Testament talk about how this process worked. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Peter. Peter's second letter in the New Testament. It's at the very end of the New Testament. And watch as Peter comments to this process of prophets writing the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 1, look with me at verse 16. Peter says, verse 16, 2 Peter chapter 1, we have not followed cleverly invented stories. This is not a hoax. This is not a game. This is not a scam. Look what Peter says, verse 19. We have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. Verse 20, above all, you must understand, Peter says, that no prophecy of Scripture ever came about by the prophet's own interpretation, by the prophet's own origination. Verse 21 says, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. You understand what he's saying? Some prophet didn't sit down one day and go, hmm, there, I think we need some more scripture, and just decide he was going to write scripture. Never happened like that. Prophets didn't do that. Watch, verse 21 says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Somehow, the Holy Spirit picked them up and filled them and overcame them and dominated them and through them wrote the Scripture. Now you say, how did this happen, Lon? What exactly did this look like? What is it like to hear the direct voice of God like that? Well, I don't know. I don't have a clue. I'm not a prophet. Never have been. And this never happened to me. I don't know. Friends, the closest that I ever come to hearing the voice of God himself is when my wife Brenda sits me down and says, now you listen to me. That's the closest I ever get to hearing the direct voice of God. I don't know how this worked. Never don't have a clue how this worked, but it worked somehow to produce the scripture. Flip back to 1 Peter chapter 1, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 1, and look at Peter comment on this here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. It says, concerning our salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you in the Old Testament, they searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now what this is saying is, when Isaiah was sitting down and writing Isaiah 53, and looking forward by 750 years to the coming of Jesus Christ, he was trying to figure out what does this mean? He didn't know what it meant. He didn't know all the details of the life of Jesus. The Spirit of God is giving it to him and he doesn't even fully understand it. And he's trying to figure out what does this mean as he wrote it. Look what the next verse says. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. God said to Isaiah, hey, Isaiah, you don't need to understand. This isn't for you. This is for people a long time after you. So I'm not going to explain it to you. You don't need to understand it. Just write it down, son, and write it down exactly the way I tell you. Lon, what I don't understand is, why can't I just believe the Jesus stuff? You know, I mean, all right, so what if Adam and Eve didn't exist? So what if Jonah didn't get swallowed by fish? So what if Noah's flood didn't really happen? So what if Sodom and Gomorrah and, you know, Lot's wife wasn't turned to pillars? So what? So what? If I believe the Jesus stuff, you know, the New Testament, all the stuff about Jesus and the resurrection and all that, what difference does all that other stuff really make? I mean, really? Well, friends, that's a good question. And let me answer it by saying it's not that simple. The stakes are a lot higher than that. 
And the reason that the stakes are higher is because Jesus Christ believed every one of those things that you're saying you don't. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said that he believed that the world began with one man and one woman getting married just the way the Bible says. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said that he believed in Noah's flood coming and sweeping away the whole world just the way the Bible says. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus said he believed in Sodom and Gomorrah and he says he believed in Lot's wife getting turned into a pillar of salt just the way the Bible says. And in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said this, just as Jonah, Jesus said, was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so I, the Son of Man, shall be in the ground three days and three nights. Now, if Jonah was not in the belly of the fish, Jesus, his credibility is completely shot. Friends, Jesus saw the Word of God as being inerrant in every single part. He staked his entire credibility as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, on the fact that the Bible is true just the way it stands, and that even the most outrageous events in the Bible happened just the way the Bible said they did. Now, if Jesus is God in the flesh, which, by the way, he must be if our salvation is worth a plug nickel, if Jesus is God in the flesh... And if Jesus knows the real truth about everything in the universe, then if he regarded the Bible in this way as inerrant and accurate in everything that it says, please explain to me how we as his followers can take a different position. I don't think that works. I mean, do we know more than Jesus did about Noah? No more than Jesus did about Adam and Eve or about Sodom and Gomorrah? I don't think so. It's a package deal. You can't say, well, we'll just take the Jesus part and the rest of it doesn't matter. Uh-uh. No, I'm sorry, friends. It's a package deal. It's either all or nothing when it comes to this. What evidence is there to make us believe that the Bible really stands the test and is true? I have three proofs to offer you. Proof number one is the changed lives of the people who've simply believed the Bible at face value. You know, when I was a brand new Christian, I was a student at the University of North Carolina, 21 years old. I believed the Bible just the way it was. I asked Jesus Christ into my life. I believed that what the Bible said about him was true. And my life began to be transformed. I began to change from the inside out. And I knew something supernatural had happened in my life. Then I ran in all my buddies. And all my buddies said, you don't really believe this, do you? You, 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 you believe the Bible? You take the Bible literally? You're an educated person. You've been to college. What are you talking about? You believe the Bible. Now, I want to tell you something. I could not argue with them theologically. I didn't have enough theology to fill a thimble. But I'll tell you this. I knew Jesus Christ had changed my life. I knew something had happened on the inside of me that had never happened before. And I knew that I didn't make it happen. It was something supernatural that the only way it made any sense is that the Bible was telling me the truth about God. Number two. Proof number two is archaeology. You know, for years, people said Caiaphas, the high priest that condemned Jesus to death, never even existed. We never found his name anywhere. We didn't know about him. Two years ago in Jerusalem, they were digging up a foundation for a house with a big old backhoe, and they accidentally dug into a tomb they didn't even know was there. Inside this tomb was an ossuary, a little limestone box where you would put the bones of dead people for storage and written big as life on the side of this box. You'll never guess whose name it was. Caiaphas. In fact, when I was in Israel last year, I went and saw it in the Israeli museum, touched it with my own hands. We not only have his name, we have the dude's bones, friends. And I could go on and on and on. But the point is, and I've said this to you so many times, the more we dig out of the ground, the more the Bible proves to be right. 
But the third and final proof, and possibly the most powerful, is the proof of fulfilled prophecy. You know, I've run into people, and maybe you have too, who say, wait a minute, Lon, wait a minute, you just don't get this, do you? All those prophecies that were supposedly written 500, 600, 800, 1,000 years before Jesus, don't you understand what they did? They went back and retrofitted the Bible, son. Don't you understand that? They watched Jesus live. They looked at the 30 pieces of silver. They watched him get pierced in his hands and his feet. They watched him get buried in a borrowed tomb. Then they went back and they changed the Old Testament so it looked like prophecy. But it wasn't prophecy. It was a scam. Don't you understand that? You live in Washington. You ought to know how they do that kind of stuff. If you really believe this, you are clueless. Because now with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have copies of the Old Testament from 100 to 250 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. We have an entire copy of the Isaiah scroll from 100 years before Jesus was ever born. And guess what? Isaiah 53 reads exactly the same as Isaiah 53 in your Bible. We have a copy of the Psalm scroll from 150 BC. Psalm 22, guess what it says? They pierced my hands and my feet. We have copies of Micah telling us about the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. All of this now, I'm not dating it, liberal scholars are dating it, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was ever born. Could anybody go back and retrofit the Bible? It didn't happen, friends. Which means the only other explanation is how could somebody 500, 600, 800 years before it happened, how could somebody predict this kind of stuff and get it right? Well, the only way I know is that a supernatural God told them and then told him to write it down, which is exactly what the Bible says it is, a supernatural God giving them information they couldn't find out themselves and saying, now write it down. And that's all the Bible says it is. Let me close by saying that maybe some of us are here and we've never trusted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, partly because when Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, nobody gets to heaven unless they come by way of me. We're not sure that's right, whether we ought to believe that. And we're waiting around for somebody to prove to us whether or not that's right. I'm here to tell you that God is reassuring you today, that's right. And if you wait for 50 years from today, John 14, 6 will still read the same. It's not going to change. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way you get to heaven is by way of me. And friends, if you've not trusted Jesus Christ with your eternal destiny, he is the only safe person to trust with it. That's the only safe place you can deposit your eternal destiny. Everything else is a loser. And if you haven't done that, I'm here to tell you that you're in great peril and that I've given you plenty enough proof to indicate the Bible is what it claims to be. You just need to make that decision and trust God. And once you've done it, you'll understand, as I'm trying to tell you now, nobody will ever be able to talk you out of it because Jesus Christ will change your life. I hope you'll think about that. Well, is this the most important theological issue in the world? I believe it is. And I hope you'll walk out of here with a deeper confidence in the Bible and having made the decision that the authority in your life, in your home, in your family is not what you want to do. It's the word of God. And if somebody needs to change, it won't be the word of God. It'll be us. You take that position and I promise you, it will serve you well the rest of your life and God will crown your life with his blessing. Heavenly Father, thanks for reminding us today that you took the trouble to give us the Bible. This wasn't an accident. You went to a lot of trouble and deliberate, intentional action to create the Word of God so that not only could we learn how to get eternal life, but so that we could learn how to live with the blessing of God on our life here on earth. Lord Jesus, as Christians, many of us here are, most of us perhaps, God grant that we might have enough sense 
to give the Bible the place of authority that it deserves in our life. Deliver us, God, from twisting the Bible, reinterpreting the Bible, fudging the Bible, and even ignoring the Bible so we can do what we feel like. Lord, that is a formula for disaster. Remind us of that this morning. And if there's areas of our life, whether it's our dating life, our sex life, our money life, our business life, whatever it is, if there are areas of our life that are out of step with the Word of God, may we leave here today having decided that with your help, we are going to change not the Bible, but we're going to change us and the way we live. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for giving us a roadmap. Give us the sense to follow it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to So What with Dr. Lon Solomon. So What is an outreach of Lon Solomon Ministries. To listen to today's message or for more information, visit our website, lonsolomonministries.org. Thank you for your support. If you would like to contact us, please visit our website or call us at 866-788-7770. We hope you will join us next time when Lon seeks to answer one of life's most important questions, so what?